Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Klein. And I'm Paul Reismandel. On the show today, we're talking about queer spaces and queer community on the radio and in podcasting, specifically lesbian broadcasters in Canada. Our guest today is Stacey Copeland. She's a media producer and PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University School of Communication in Vancouver, Canada. Stacy is producer of the Spoken Web podcast about literary sound and also produces the scholarly Amplify podcast network. This might ring a bell with listeners as we discuss both projects with Hannah McGregor on Radio Survivor episodes 275 and 284. We're very excited to welcome Stacy Copeland on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. As just mentioning, I was listening to your Michelle Helms episode just before I logged on. So I feel like I went from one Radio Survivor universe into the real one. So excited to be here. I do want to make one note. So I just finished my work with Spoken Web Podcast and handed over the reins as producer to the wonderful Judith Burr, which is giving me a bit more time to focus on the growing Amplify Podcast Network as well. Yeah, you have so many projects that you're working on. So I'm I'm not surprised that that you might have to kind of shift focus here and there from time to time. Well, it, it's exciting to have you on the show. And I wanted to also say happy pride because we're recording this episode on Friday, June 25th, uh, towards the end of Pride Month. And your research focus is on lesbian radio. So it's perfect timing. And I wanted to see if we could start by having you define what lesbian radio is. Sure. I mean, this is one of the key questions I ask everyone that I'm talking to in my research about lesbian radio. So for the most part, you know, we can go to the basic definitions of lesbian radio being radio that's produced by lesbians, for lesbians, and about lesbians. Um, And when I'm talking about my research, we're also looking more broadly at queerness as well as the way people identify broaden outside of the historical lesbian and gay kind of binary in the homosexual world um, towards different nuances of queerness. So also thinking about what that sounds like when we're listening back as well. And in Canada, is it common to have shows that are explicitly that you would explicitly think about as lesbian radio not anymore so part of why i'm really interested in the subject matter of lesbian feminist and queer radio um as well as podcasting as well so think about sound works like michelle helms on your show talks about of course um is because we had this huge uh boom or long running, decades long running shows in Canada that were very lesbian focused from the late 70s, early 80s into the 2010s, late 2010s. And then we saw a really interesting shift happen where a lot of those shows became amalgamated um, into the same shows that were for queer or gay specific um, genre. So a lot of shows in the 70s and 80s on community radio in Canada. We'd have the lesbian show, for instance, in Vancouver, and then we'd have the coming out show, which was um, primarily for gay men and then broader queer community. Those shows then got merged together once the lesbian show ended. 
Same thing happened in Montreal at CKUT, where we had Dykes on Mics, um, ended up merging with uh, Queer Core, which was originally called The Homo Show, primarily about gay men. Um, and those shows merged together into a more broader queer show once Dykes on Mics went off air as well. It's interesting that historically you had more specificity in these shows and then they broadened. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's really interesting to look back on some of these dialogues around identity and politics. And I mean, the lesbian show was, to my knowledge so far and my research so far, the earliest lesbian focused radio show in Canada. It was started in 1979. And that was just a few years after community radio became a thing in Canada that we even had community radio stations, um, similar timeline in the U.S. as well. Um, and thinking about the establishment of community radio as a space for diverse voices that weren't in the commercial market, we started to see these shows emerge. And at the same time, we had, you know, large feminist movements, large queer equality movements happening all over the world, and we think in the US and in Canada too. So we had this kind of politics of visibility being taken up in the 70s and 80s with a lot of vigor. And we saw that in radio too. So the lesbian show was all about lesbian visibility. You hear it in the name. It's literally called the lesbian show. So that was their focus. It was about getting people just knowing that lesbians existed because at the time, there were still people who didn't know the term. They weren't familiar with it. It wasn't regular, everyday language like it is today. And sounds like these are principally shows then on campus community radio. Yes, yeah. So the two shows I'm particularly interested in uh, at the moment, anyways, The Lesbian Show and Dykes on Mics, were both community radio shows Um one without an affiliation with campus. So Vancouver Co-op Radio is specifically a nonprofit co-op uh, community radio station. And then Dykes on Mics was out of CKUT, which is connected to McGill University of Montreal. Got it. And I know this isn't necessarily the, the mainstream of your research, but do you know, I mean, was there much incidence of programming uh, by and for lesbians on commercial radio, let's say just in, in Canada? On commercial radio, no. So there's very, very few far between commercial stations for gays and lesbians, LGBTQ community in general. Um, Pride FM in Toronto is one of very few, but it was started decades later. It certainly wasn't being operated at the time that these shows were first on air. Yeah, we And how about... Oh, how about specific radio shows? I know that in the United States, there have been commercial radio stations that might have more niche programming on the weekends, for example. And in some cases, there might be an LGBTQ-focused show on a commercial station. So was that something that you were ever aware of in Canada? Not that I'm super aware of. I mean, if people know of some, I would be so excited to hear about it. So please reach out. Um, but yeah, I mean, Pride FM was born in the commercial radio station market because of a lack of that content in that market in Canada. Um, and then with CBC Radio, it was usually just single night specials or limited run series versus long-term shows. They do have a, a podcast now, Chosen Family, which is one of the first ones in Canada for them to have that is a, an ongoing series. I mean, this makes me think about there's a long-running syndicated 
community radio show, uh, maybe carried in Canada, certainly common in the U.S., called This Way Out. Um, again, not specifically, uh, you know, sort of generally for the queer community and not specifically for, for lesbians in particular, um, but definitely itself, you know, very much an independent uh, syndicated kind of kind of program, very grassroots uh, and nothing at all, um, you know, uh, certainly not commercially funded by any, by any stretch. Yeah, and there's a lot of that, which I love, but I, I think I'm really interested in looking at the niche of lesbian, and I say lesbian feminist work because at the time in the 70s and 80s, that's how they defined themselves. Um, lesbian feminist work because they didn't last. But I do feel like we're starting to see a resurgence of interest in more identity-centric media uh, across the board, not just in radio and podcasting, but in all of the media we consume um, that we just hadn't really seen over the last few decades. And so I'm interested to see if that shifts, you know, some of the community and independent work that we start to see as well out of the broad cat broad umbrella category of LGBTQ, say news shows or uh, current event shows like this way up. And, and, and speaking of, of lesbian media, I think it's super interesting at Simon Fraser that there's this project, the archives of lesbian oral testimony and has this play? Well, first of all, tell us about that. I, I have a feeling that it's played a big part in your work. So tell us what the archives of lesbian oral testimony, what that is. Yeah, very near and dear to my heart. So the archives of lesbian oral testimony was started by Elle Chenier, who is a historian at Simon Fraser University. And it's an online archive for the most part. There are physical archival materials that are housed at SFU. Um, but it, the initiative is really about bringing those stories, that, those pieces of media, those conversations out into the public. Um, and so I came across that website a few years before I started my PhD research, and it really was a big part of why I got interested in the subject matter. It was the first time that I came across the lesbian show or had ever heard of it. I had never seen it in publications before. Um, and as someone who's studying queer media and studying feminist media, I was surprised that I had never heard about this show that had been on air for decades. So um, I was interested in listening to it and listening to some of the early files that they had in there from mostly the early 90s. I could hear myself in those. And that was really powerful for me, you know, listening to other people talk about their queer experiences, talking about community. I felt like it was something I could hear on air today, but it was from 1992, you know? So that really got me thinking about those connections, about talking to people from the past who are making these shows and seeing how it reflects or might shape how we make media moving forward. So, Maybe talk more about what all is in those archives. Oh, gosh, there's so much. So the Lesbian Show archive is just one of many files you can find. Um, there's a bunch of oral history recordings. There's videos. There are also links to, I believe they have a connection to... Um, a lesbian, or not a lesbian, a leather fetish museum in the U.S. too. Quite the range. <laughs> Yeah, so there's a ton of stuff in here. Yeah, so they, they have some connections with, um, I believe that one's in Chicago. And then uh, a few 
collections from Bold Fest, which is for older lesbians. Um, they've run a couple of events and uh, conferences, for instance, for older lesbians. So they have an archive of work from, from that initiative. They have um, a collection that's all about women's music and Canadian women in particular making women's music. And then the lesbian show as well. And and so when you started diving into this archive, is that what prompted your PhD research idea? Was it sparked by the archive or did you turn to the archive when, when you started doing your research or how do you, <laughs> which came first maybe is the question. <laughs> A chicken or egg situation. Exactly. Yeah. It's, this one's always an interesting question to think through because for me, it's so many layers. My, my undergrad was in radio production. So I have been a radio producer in the past. I've been a, a music producer. Um, I worked as production assistant at the university that I graduated from for a while, helping other people learn how to make radio. And so that experience got me really thinking about women's roles and gendered roles in the audio production space. As someone really into tech, I often found myself up against some gendered barriers, depending on what work situation I was in. And that got me thinking about what I could do about it. So I started, uh, I co-founded a feminist radio collective um, through the Ryerson Campus Community Radio Station um, uh, called Fem Radio at the time in 2016. And that project was just so much fun, just talking to other feminists, other people interested in gender politics and activism all over Canada uh, with friends. <laughs> so very casual chat style show and then bringing in music and uh, experimental work from time to time. But that project led me to my master's research, which was all about gendered voice and women's experiences of their voice on air. So that's really where the two came together. When I came across the archive of lesbian oral testimony, saw the lesbian show, had already been very invested in gendered politics on air. The two kind of came together in a really exciting way for me, not to mention I'm a sound studies nerd, so that I could continue on studying sound and radio was, was awesome. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. Like what a find to have this whole collection on your campus too. Um, you know, it seems like there's a lot of respect for sound work at Simon Fraser. Um, so it must be great to be in the midst of all of that. Yeah, Simon Fraser University has just a, a wonderful history of, of sound studies in particular. And um, I'm part of that tradition at School of Communication, which has the history of R. Murray Schaefer, who is a very well-known um, uh, soundscape composer and also part of the World Soundscape Project, Barry Truax, who still, you know, uh, haunts the hallways, if you will, <laughs> as a professor emeritus. He's uh, very active and, and always there to talk to us and support us as students and researchers at the university. Hildegard Westerkamp, um, I'm sure you've talked about on the show. And then, of course, my supervisor, Dr. Melina Drumeva, who's kind of taken over the legacy of the World Soundscape Project and continues to do active research in sound studies and, and the city. And, and back, to, back to your project, it's interesting to me that 
you are a radio producer and you're also employing these feminist practices to your work. And, and I, I read that you're using the archives as part of uh, your interview process when you're talking to, talking to some people who participated in some of these radio shows. Can you explain more about that, about how you're using archival audio in your research when you're talking to people that you're interviewing? Yeah, I mean, because I want to partly recreate that experience that I first had in listening to the lesbian show for the first time. I think as radio producers, when we get to hear similar work or hear something that reflects ourselves in work from decades past, it really encourages us. You know, it gives us a sense that there is some sort of community or there is this sort of lineage that we're, we are a part of. And that's hard to find sometimes when you're making maybe more niche work or you're coming from an uh, experience or an identity position that isn't well represented in mainstream media. So listening back to some of these clips, so I, I can talk about it because they've already signed their waivers for my research, um, talking to folks like Caitlin Press from The Heart, talking to folks from uh, an initiative here called um, Procyon Network, Procyon Podcast Network, which is making more queer sci-fi shows out of Canada. And they don't explicitly identify as feminists, but they just all happen to be women and genderqueer folks making media about women and genderqueer folks. Um, and then, of course, The Heart, which really does take a, a, an interesting queer feminist approach to all of the work that they make, um, but for a wider audience. So listening back to, say, clips from The Lesbian Show where they're experimenting with uh, a limited series they did called Dykes in Space where they play around with processing and they play around with the idea of all of them being in space together, listening to that with people who are making sci-fi fiction podcasts today uh, centered on queer women's experiences is just so heartwarming. And it really helps shift the conversation in interesting ways because you get some of that emotion, some of that, uh, it's almost like icebreakers too, you know, it breaks down people's walls. It gets them thinking about their own position in the grander scheme of things in the radio world. I love that you're drawing these connections between queer feminist radio from the past with podcasting today. And is that, it seems like your project is, is quite, quite broad, you know, looking, taking a deep dive into these historical shows, but also tying it to the future. Can you explain more about, about how you're handling the breadth of that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's big, but it's actually quite small in the grand scheme of things. There's not, especially in the Canadian context, not that many shows to look at in the first place. And unfortunately, not that many people from the shows that were started in the seventies and eighties, that are around anymore or that are actively available or easy to contact because of the nature of community radio. People might only be on air for a few months at a time and then they're gone on to their next project. So it's often only the people who founded the show or were on air for decades that I get to talk to. And then same goes for podcasting. I mean, 
I, I'm always a bit saddened by the, you know, in Canada, we're overshadowed a bit by our sister to the south of the U.S. when it comes to media. And podcasting is very much a space like that um, because there's so much content coming out of the U.S. and coming out of the U.K. as well. Uh, when we're thinking about English language podcasts that often the markets are already oversaturated for Canadian shows and with less funding um, here, when we're thinking about not as many community radio stations, not as many large established podcast networks, there just isn't as much material. There isn't as many shows to study in the first place. So I'm hoping my research can help change that um, and really get people thinking about making shows that are rooted in where they are, that are rooted in Canadian experience. I'd love to hear more about, you've just given these kind of tantalizing hints of some of these early shows uh, with the sci-fi elements, et cetera. Um, maybe take us back. Let's see. Uh, I don't know if you want to start with a lesbian show or Dykes on Mics and, and talk more about the breadth of what was happening on one of those programs. Yeah, sure. So the lesbian show I've been writing about quite recently. So it's a little more fresh in my mind. So The Lesbian Show um, out of Vancouver Co-op Radio is a magazine-style show, which many community radio shows are. So um, for people who aren't familiar with that terminology, you know, there'd be an opening music segment of some sort, some banter off of the top, an introduction to who they might be speaking to on the show that day. Um, usually that let, banter. We want to let listeners know that this was 1989, 1990, 1991. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, um, definitely changed today. But um, thinking about, you know, their banter includes a lot of innuendo and speak about uh, or kind of language that community is only going to understand, uh, which I find really interesting in listening to, say, a show like The Lesbian Show compared to um, a lot of more larger mainstream media content around lesbian and queer identity. Um, and then we'd have, you know, a music break, then the interview. Occasionally people would read poetry on air. Uh, and then they also had segments like Dykes on Dykes in Space. Um, for a while, they were running a radio drama as well. So it was called Against All Odds. And they had a, a four-part radio drama that they did live on air on the lesbian show as well. So it was kind of whatever they wanted it to be, which is really interesting for me to study it because it's hard to put it into a single category sometimes. You're alluding to this... Uh like they're talking in, uh, I forget what term you said, but it's sort of, they're talking in sort of insider language. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, they're really talking in more of a queer vernacular. So talking about places or people that if you're not part of that community at the time or studying it like I am now, you might not really get some of the jokes that they're that they're playing on or understand some of the events that they're talking about as well. Um, one of the things, you know, it's it's June while we're having this conversation. Pride Month is also June here, um, but we have pride celebrations in different months in different provinces and cities. But we often think of Stonewall, right, as the big event that kind of catalyzed June as Pride Month. But in Canada, we have similar events that happened, like Operation Soap, which was hundreds of men who got rounded up in Toronto that 
was in a different month and that's not where pride is. But they might talk about these things as if they are common knowledge because they were in the communities at the time. I just learned that there was a protest in Los Angeles two years before Stonewall at a uh, surrounding a club called the Black Cat. That was the first out, outwardly gay street protest for the same reasons, to protest police brutality in gay clubs uh, two years prior to Stonewall in New York City. Yeah, it's it's really interesting what sort of events get catalyzed or put up onto pedestals versus others, for sure. And then how about, so that was the lesbian show. How about Dykes on Mikes? Maybe you give us a bit of a backstory about that show. Yeah, so Dykes on Mikes, the lesbian show tended to be a bit more news focus. They had a news segment always, just like most magazine style shows do, like an events and news segment at the end. Um, Dykes on Mikes started out that way from my knowledge, but ended up being more of a casual chat style show by the end. Um, So in the last few decades of it, they would often have hosts primarily just doing banter, bringing on their friends, talking about what's going on in their lives. Uh, Deb Van Slit, who's who was on air for quite a few years on Dykes on Mikes, for instance, would just happen to talk to a lesbian in the street who, say, was a plumber and bring them on air and talk about what it was like to be a lesbian plumber in the early 90s. So these are the kinds of different conversations you would get um, compared to what was happening at the lesbian show, where it seems like there was a a larger variety of work happening um, versus Dykes on Mikes was very much community rooted. It was about who are the people in our community, who are lesbians, who just happen to be lesbians, right? What is that experience like for them? Um, And then later, a a lot of the hosts were very involved in, of course, queer activism in Montreal. And so they would bring on uh, event organizers, other activists, and have those sort of long-form interview discussions with, you know, little musical breaks in between as well. Stacey Copeland, um, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you have these archives to begin with uh, of, of the lesbian show and Dykes on Mikes, uh, because it, it seems that in community radio in particular, um, those archives can be hard to come by. And, and if, if shows were recorded often, that means they're in a, in a shoebox or a, a closet or a storage space that the producer had, you know, tucked away of cassettes. Do you have any sense of of why and how uh, these shows got preserved in the first place? Great question. Yeah. And I mean, when you're talking about queer community, that's an even bigger issue because there was and still is a lot of distrust of government and institutional organizations and giving your files, your histories to them to look after um, when we've had so many issues in the past of those files then being burned or lost or put somewhere else and never quite um, given the platform that they they deserve. So, I mean, that's partly why the Archive of Lesbian Oral Testimony was established. It's a a long history, just like in the U.S., um, of queer archives being established outside of institutions by community to make sure that we get these histories collected and stored. I mean, I, I gotta say, I am super lucky that um, not only with archives, the archive of oral testimony, the Vancouver archive, um, city of Vancouver archive, which is now home to the BC gay and lesbian archives 
just uh, received and digitized, just finished digitizing last year, I believe, uh, a whole other collection of Mm. lesbian show tapes, which I didn't even know existed because um, I started researching this at a time where the BC Gay and Lesbian Archives were in transition. So those archives used to be in someone's house, Ron Dutton. He literally started it in the 70s. The BC Gay and Lesbian Archives started in the 70s. It was just run out of his house. Um, And he then donated all of those files. So for a while, no one really knew what was in them until the City of Vancouver Archives finally started cataloging and digitizing everything. So you can even go listen to those now. Those are all online, which is Mm. awesome. And then Dykes on Mics, I only have because I got a box of tapes from one of my interviewees. Wow. Wow. And uh, it, what's what's also, I think, got to be a delightful experience for you, you know, you, you sort of mentioned how, you know, the Dyson Mike series started out one way and sort of progressed. And to be able to actually listen to that progression of how the show's developed, which is both, I think, form as well as content, because for the person who was experiencing it in real time, unless they themselves were actually recording it, it's kind of a change that might go unnoticed. You know, someone might say, Hey, I remember, you know, year ago, two years ago, they used to do this thing and they did this segment. I wish they do it or I wish they, you know, whatever. But in most cases, I think it, it, it's hard to perceive as it's happening and you're getting to, to sort of listen in on a development because you're, you're, you're doing it post facto because you have the tapes. I'm wondering, you know, well, what, what, what's that experience like? And, and, uh, and do you perceive, what do you perceive maybe informs those kind of shifts? You know, do you think it's, you know, cause some, it can be sometimes because there is a kind of a, a dialogue of sorts with audience. And sometimes it's, it's the dialogue of the people producing it, right? The, the folks who may come and go. Yeah. I mean, it's a complex question. So I think partly in what I'm finding in my research i think it has to do of course with the shift to there being the internet (laughs) so there was a a larger valuing of community radio in a pre-internet era because not everyone could make their own media not everyone could make their own podcast in their bedroom it was a a privilege really to be in those spaces and and it was an institution in that sense for giving voice to people who otherwise couldn't get their stories out there, that stories that weren't getting told in the mainstream versus when we're talking about the early 2000s, where we're really starting to see a lot of these shifts take place. We're not seeing the same valuing of community radio, I think, um, because there's so many other ways to get your voice out there, to get your story out there now than there was back then. And it also has to do with, you know, classic volunteer burnout. These organizations in Canada are nonprofits. They're primarily run and operated by volunteers and a small skeleton staff that is not paid enough for what they do. And that means that people come and go and we lose a lot of that that form. I think, you know, to give contemporary community radio a break, I think it also has to do with when we're listening to things from the early 80s on community radio, the only model that they really had was the CBC here, public radio. And so they were mimicking what they thought radio should sound like. 
there wasn't a lot of other examples versus, you know, once we've had a few decades of community radio to be whatever it wants to be, we start to see more loose forms taking shape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that makes me think about when you yourself were doing campus community radio a bit later and, and you hadn't heard some of these programs. So when you were doing a feminist radio collective, what were you calling upon um, in your mind as far as your radio inspiration? Yeah, for sure it was traditional radio formats when we're talking about public radio at CBC here because myself being... I was in the media uh, media production, which at the time was called Radio and Television Arts degree. Um, and then my co-founder, Emily Javesky, was a journalism student. So we were coming from a very formalized radio production background. Podcasting was established. It was out. This is 2016. It existed. We, we even put out Femme Radio as a podcast, just like you do with Radio Survivor. So we had a sense of, you know, different forms we could take with it. And it did mean we did some more experimental things on it, but it did take exactly the same sort of magazine style format because that's what we thought it should sound like. It should have an opening musical piece. It should have an intro to the hosts and what we're going to talk about today. So we just fell into that form, I think, because it was what we were used to listening to. And I'm curious, you know, since you're looking at this historically, what do you see in in podcasts and lesbian podcasts today? And is there similarity back with these early lesbian radio shows? Because I, I think it's fascinating and kind of sad that you talked about how these very specific lesbian shows existed and then they got sort of morphed into more generalized queer radio shows. So are you seeing more, more specific lesbian shows again in the podcasting realm? Yeah, not a ton, but more than the none that existed. So um, yeah, so with with folks like at the Procyon Podcast Network making shows that are queer sci-fi women and genderqueer centered shows and the heart really thinking about how we can bring lesbian and queer feminist ideas and identities into mainstream um, audio work, we are starting to see some of those conversations being taken up again, but in very different ways because they're not stories that are necessarily rooted in the local, in the community that they're being created in. They're being created for a global listenership, for a broad listenership that's maybe interested in the story and identity, but not necessarily interested in the connections to, say, a small town in Canada. That's really interesting to think about these historic shows that were hyper-local and and do you have a sense that that's something that is just not as common anymore to have a hyper-local show about queer culture? Yeah, there's a few. And I mean, Queer FM, for instance, out of UBC's community campus radio station has been on air for decades as well from the 90s. And those folks are doing amazing work. But again, a, a more broader queer show. And there's quite a few of those. You can usually find one at every community station in Canada for the most part um, until somebody leaves and it's on hiatus for a while. But yeah, I think we're starting to see a lot more um interesting local focused shows start to emerge 
Um, for instance, there's one in the U.S., Country Queers, Country Queers, which is out of the U.S. and really showcases rural queer folks and their lives. And it is just an amazing podcast, um, fairly recent, and they're doing, they're doing great work. And I think we are starting to see some more interest in getting back to community, but it, it is a struggle. And I think it relates also to a lot of the discussions that are happening in broader queer community about closures of physical spaces as well. So a lot of queer bars, lesbian bars being closed over the past few years, even more so because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that translates and, and echoes the same experiences that are happening in community radio, where there just isn't the same sort of importance on local community. But I think it is changing. I think it comes in ebbs and flows. I mean, I'm not a historian myself. I consider myself more like a media theorist who has a, a real appreciation for history. Um, but when we're looking back and what historians always tell us is that history tends to repeat itself. So I think we're seeing that happen again. Stacy, do you think that the lack of an example of a more community-based or hyper-local podcast is, is sort of it's sort of self-perpetuating that the folks see the model as something which is which is sort of national or global in scope and just presume that and and it takes someone to kind of go wait a minute and break the mold i think it takes and it's awful to say but i think it takes someone breaking the mold and making money at it <laughs> unfortunately in the world that we live in and that's one of the biggest frustrations for folks who are making queer and feminist media right now is that the feminist collective ethos does not pair well with capitalism so i think what often happens is you have to be thinking a bit broad you look at examples that have done well like nancy uh, even though Nancy is now off air, so maybe not the best example anymore. But shows like Nancy, shows like The Heart that are taking broader ideas of experience and of queerness and of human aspect that podcast is podcasting is so good at, taking those aspects and they're doing well at it. So people are trying to mimic the same form for, for sure. It's such a different landscape now where I'm just thinking about representation, that we have queer representation across all sorts of mainstream media. And so I'm sure that that plays a part in some of what you're talking about. And, you know, you talked earlier about queer spaces, physical spaces, you know, like bars, but also that radio or podcast can be queer spaces. And maybe, maybe speak to that, you know, what, what, um, what's the importance of having kind of a queer directed queer space versus queers within a space that's more mainstream yeah, I mean, this is this is something I think we're starting to see a huge resurgence of even in mainstream media initiatives that are and we can thank large movements like Black Lives Matter for this, you know, large resurgences of industry saying, oh, you know, maybe white dudes shouldn't be making all of the biggest decisions in our network. <laughs> maybe there should be a bit more variety of people making decisions on our large projects that are going out for all of, say, in the U.S., all Americans to hear um, when they may be, you know, a bunch of white dudes, not to knock only on white dudes, but a bunch of white dudes can't um, necessarily understand how other listeners who are black, who are um, from other 
you know, class systems, for instance, will listen to that work. They might not know what they want to listen to. So having a variety of those voices, I think, is starting to be of interest to not only niche community radio stations, but to all media stations. And it should be. And that's exciting because it will mean, you know, if we keep doing it, we've, again, seen this happen before. And then we think, hooray, problem solved. And then (laughs) we start all over again. Um, But thinking, you know, that could lead to some really interesting work being done. But I think before that work can continue on, people have to start getting used to listening to stories that they maybe aren't used to listening to. And that's going to take time. That's going to take repetition for that, for that to happen, for sure. Stacey Copeland, you're, you're with us today on Radio Survivor because we've been talking about some archives that you um, studied that were of uh, lesbian shows from the late 80s and early 90s. And you're also a podcaster, and we've been talking about queer podcasting and lesbian podcasting. Um, the archives of the community radio shows... Um, I'm wondering if you could talk more about what what lessons you want people who are making radio now or podcasts because it's the same thing to get from from the past. Like why why care about these old shows? What do they have to teach us? Yeah. Oh, so one of the things I'm really interested in, especially right now when identity politics, I feel like is a very hot topic when it comes to media representation. You can talk about media representation better now and with anyone than I think you could decades before. And, you know, you say people who are queer or people who are black should be making their own media. And people are like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Um But I think what we can take from listening back to shows, especially community radio shows in Canada from the 70s and 80s, is also their structural and production choices. So not only were we having these folks, you know, queer folks making queer media for queer folks, by queer folks, right? But they were also really experimenting with what that looked like structurally. So thinking about What were some of the catalysts that created community radio in the first place at the time? What might we learn from those socially informed structural changes when it comes to media? Um, How might that help us rethink the current issues we're having now with getting voices out there that maybe aren't making the big bucks? Um, Maybe we need to support those people in different ways that aren't driven just by dollar signs, right? Um, And what would that kind of model look like? What does collective sharing of work look like? Um, What does it mean to bring a bunch of community members in, train them up, and get them making audio together in dialogue with other media makers? Those are kinds of things that I think we can start to see taking shape in the 70s and 80s that we should start thinking more about today. Yeah, I really really like that idea because there's I, I can't think of any models, you know, that like people could come together to make a podcast um, to make the podcast together, not not to monetize the podcast or Patreon uh, to the moon, the podcast, but to 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 put your voices out there uh, collectively, which was, you know, the default of community radio in the in the 80s and 90s and not the default of podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, of course, we have to think about the reality we're living in 
now is different and people are hesitant to do things that don't pay them and yeah, take up about, a lot of time. And so we have to factor that in, in the cities, like mm-hmm. really the, the people that got to make community radio in the eighties and nineties didn't have to, there wasn't as much pressure uh, uh, to, to make their rent as there is now. I mean, it, it's simple as that, I think. Well, and, and back to this di- idea of practice and collectives, you know, it, it reminds me, we had a conversation with Monica De La Torre about um, a radio station in Yakima, Washington, that had a feminist orientation to, you know, how some of the radio was produced. And and I know that that you think and write a lot about how some of this radio, how the practice of, of producing the show is feminist or queer. So maybe talk a bit about, about that and what you've learned about feminist and queer practice from looking back at these shows. Yeah. I mean, feminist collectives are really fascinating to look at in different forms. And in Canada, we've had a few different big ones like Studio D, which was National Film Board. When we're talking about filmmakers, um, for anyone who's nerdy and wants to look at feminist collective histories and media. It's a good one to look at. But um, in the radio scene, what I really love about reading and talking to folks from the lesbian show, for instance, who were very much rooting their radio work in a lesbian feminist politics, it was about for them thinking thinking and taking the time to really reflect on whose voices were going to be in the show but also who's listening. So for them, the show wasn't just for people in Vancouver. It was also for folks who were in rural communities who were picking up the airwaves, right? Picking up the broadcast in, say, Abbotsford, which is slightly big now, but was very small rural town back then, um, who didn't have access to community at the time. So thinking about these folks living in rural communities the only way that they can get any sort of lesbian news and lesbian community building is through listening to this show because they can't get to the places easily to go be part of community. Um, we talked a lot with my interviewees about safety too. So, you know, thinking even today, there's a lot of risk in being involved. It, there's a lot of risk involved in being queer, depending on the community that you're in um, or the place that you're in. But back then it, it was pretty bad across the board in a a lot of places. Um, Vancouver was not the city it is now, for instance. And so there was a lot of risk involved in carrying around, say, uh, an LGBTQ magazine on your person or showing up to an event that that took a, a lot. And it could put your job at risk. It could put your life at risk. And so listening to the radio was a a safe way for people to get involved, to hear that there was people like them out there. And so I think thinking about those concrete values and thinking broader about who you're serving, but also who you're involving is a key aspect of feminist collective work. It's a very reflexive process. Um, But of course, that means you need a lot of hands to be doing that and you need a lot of time to be doing that, which are two things that it's is quite a struggle when it comes to community radio and volunteer work. I'm really struck by the safe place that radio was providing. And and we've talked to Brian DeShazer about this also. He has yeah. um, 
the Queer Radio Research Project. And I remember him describing some of these call-in shows where people mm. would call in and basically come out over the air or, you know, ask questions that they don't have a community of people yeah. close and at just, hand. Brian DeShazer, friend of Radio Survivor, guest on Radio Survivor um, a handful of times, future guest, uh, is now helping uh, the This Way Out program, which has a really fascinating history in, in gay radio, uh, when This Way Out was on the air in KPFK in Los Angeles, uh, one of the founding producers said that they'd be on the air for, I don't remember if it was an hour or half an hour, but then they'd be taking calls from listeners for the next two hours at the station. That mm. that first it was out on the air, and then they would just be getting off the air calls because they were the only resource. They would, they'd be taking crisis calls from people, um, and this was probably in... The Los Angeles listening area in in the in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, people who needed somebody to talk to um, about what was going on in their lives. Yeah. Oh, I love Brian's work. I'm so excited by the work that he's doing for sure. And there's just such a rich history in the U.S. of these types of shows too. Um, I mean, the Lesbian Friends, I think, with San Francisco is, again, uh, a long-running lesbian radio show. So there's a ton of them in the U.S., too. Did you run across any call-in elements of these shows that you've been looking at so far, Stacey? Oh, yeah. I mean, call-in is essential radio content, isn't it? <laughs> I still feel like that's essential when you're looking at commercial radio in particular. Call-in culture is huge. It's how we relate to and know that people are listening when we're on air. Um, one of my favorite things that the lesbian show did, for instance, was they had a Valentine's call-in show. So you could call in and say a lovely Valentine on air for the woman or person that you were uh, having as your Valentine that year. And if you didn't want to have your voice on air or say your name in the sense of safety again, they would read it for you. And listening to that hour of Valentine's call-in content is just so, so wonderful. <laughs> that sounds incredibly sweet. I yeah, it's adorable. You know, you've you've mentioned the safety aspect of this. So so I'm also wondering, like on on the downside, have you run across letters to some of these radio stations or in your research have you run across people who protested the very existence of some of these shows? Not so much of these shows. I think it speaks a lot to, you know, community radio at the time was very niche, still is in Canada. Most people, you know, they do have solid listenerships, but CBC and commercial radio really dominates the radio industry here. So people, I think, were more concerned with protesting large queer movements, um, large queer protest events, there'd be backlash protests, rather than specifically targeting these stations. And I mean, the stations had the benefit of having a variety of content on air as well. These weren't just exclusively, you know, uh, it wasn't a lesbian radio station in 1979. It also had a bunch of other content on it from across the community. And they really tried to make sure they positioned themselves as a place for everyone, for all community to be welcome which I think helps. Yeah, I would imagine that, that that made it feel like an even safer space, that the entire radio station was a place for all sorts of people. So that could be a place where your voice was valued. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, there was some pushback. The 
lesbian show, for instance, grew out of conflicts that the founders at the time were having with the men from the coming out show. And uh, I don't think it was by accident that the programmer then scheduled the lesbian show to be the hour exactly after the coming out show. So they would have to run into each other (laughs) when the one group was coming out of their broadcast and the next folks were coming in. Um, So there was some internal conflict for sure, which directly reflects the movement at the time um, and some of the the breakages and cracks in, say, the queer movement in the 70s and 80s. And did any of that come across in the show? Occasionally, yes. So I think it's always funny talking back to some of the lesbian activists from that era, the way that they might talk about, you know, the, the boys from the coming out show. So think about the language use um, in talking about folks in community. So the boys, even if they were in their 40s, let's say at the time that they were doing the show. And this kind of given that they had a different um, perspective on the world and a different community, a very specifically gay community that needed to be showcased on that show, that didn't have the same focus or interests as the lesbian community at the time. I want to listen to the archives uh, the same way they aired on the like that day's uh, gay show and that day's lesbian show. Yeah, there's some um, specials where they did like shows together, a two hour block special. You can listen to those. (laughs) Well, listening back. So listening back to these early radio shows and now you're listening to a lot of podcasts. What what would be your overall sense of how queer media has changed over the years? Just a small question. Um, I mean, queer media today has just, it's been changing with the nuances of queer community. LGBTQ as an umbrella was made with a specific purpose. Before that, it was just lesbian and gay. Then it was lesbian and gay and bisexual, you know, and it's grown to include and, and be more nuanced in what sort of identities you can have. And I think we see that directly reflected in the sort of media you can find made by queer community as well. Um, I do think the word queer has lost some of its punk rock political charge that it used to have in, say, the 90s as a, a term of reclamation. Um, but... Maybe that is just what happens, right? With repetition of terms that might be uh, politically charged at one time in history, not so politically charged now, and now have become more just a, a simple identity umbrella for folks who maybe don't identify specifically with gay or lesbian or bisexual. Um, so, yeah, I think we're in an interesting time where there's a lot more mainstream representation to a lot of musicians, for instance, coming out. There's not as much um, backlash anymore and risk involved anymore like there was in the, say, 80s and 90s to come out as a musician or an actor, for instance. Yeah, we just had a, a professional football player in the United States come out as gay, which, you know, it made all of the you know, local news broadcast because, you know, that's, that's a big deal in professional sports. You know, unfortunately, that's a big deal. I saw a really funny screenshot someone posted where I think it was CNN accidentally put actively gay sports player, actively gay football player. Yes. (laughs) 
Yes, we we chuckled over that in our household too. That... Football's a pretty active sport. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of activity. You know, like I'm sure he's very actively gay, but <laughs> yeah. But then you know, I I also just saw you know I, I the the singer Demi Lovato came out, and I the, I saw this in the radio press, um, and it's a Boston area station where management came down on uh, the, I think he's a morning DJ and said, you know, cut out making fun of Demi Lovato, essentially, right? Cut it out. And um, ended up instead going then on an on-air tirade, lambasting his producer, who of course is a woman, who quit, right? And basically saying, you know, you're supposed to protect me, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and, you know, they're just worried because then, you know, the Demi Lovato's label quit, you know, helping us out or whatever, but we still have this as, as a very prominent, I mean, that, that's, I mean, it was a prominent morning show, commercial radio in, 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 in a large market, you know, that, that, that's still, you know, obviously it's good to hear that radio station management was pushing against this person, this, this guy, but, but clearly not enough and clearly not in an effective sort of way, you know? So, you know, as much as we have, uh, better representation, you know, still just, you know, maybe just a few clicks away on the dial. Um, you know, every, it seems like every number of months I still read about and hear about, uh, you know, on air, uh, talent, usually, usually white men, frankly, uh, who, who, you know, are still expressing quite a bit of, of hate and, and homophobia and, and lack of experience of acceptance. We also hear about it to some extent now because often more often they're being disciplined or, you know, there, there is more pushback happening rather than it, it, it being viewed as quite as acceptable. But often, frankly, the, the pushback or the uh, whatever uh, consequences aren't really seem re- rather mild, frankly. <laughs> and it's, to me, that continually highlights how I think important, you know, to be able to have uh, these other spaces – you know, but also, you know, it's kind of why I was asking if there was a space on commercial radio, right? Because of the fact that, you know, community radio, as you mentioned in Canada, as, as this is true in the United States, is still relatively niche, you know, and which is wonderful because it can create, I think, those safe spaces. Um, but then also may mean that a lot of folks who could benefit from, from the programming simply aren't aware of it. And I don't, I don't know if, if in, 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 in today's media age, especially with regard to radio and now podcasting, Stacey, if, if you feel like or you sense that um, there's greater knowledge that, that, that you know, a young uh, queer person knows and can find and might come across uh, you know, podcasting programming, probably more likely than radio programming, that's going to help uh, – that they're going to be able to identify with and it's going to be able to, uh, you know, they'll be able to join that, that sort of community of, of the air. Yeah. I think it's really easy to find your own niche wherever you are and whoever you are right now. Um, but unfortunately that's also part of the problem <laughs> because the, the kind of folks like the, the person you're talking about right now that typically historically were found mainly in the talk radio format 
are now also in the podcast space and in the YouTube and vlogging space and creating huge movements of their own. So you, like you said, also don't have to go too far to find the complete opposite experience. Um, and so I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this all takes shape as we move forward. We're just starting to see, you know, podcasting become more formalized in these ways. Folks like Joe Rogan getting paid millions of dollars by Spotify for their programming. Um, And so it'll tell us a lot, I think, what shows get those spots, what podcasts get those big pots of money will tell us where the importance lies and where the future lies of podcasting and what kind of content we'll see getting pushed to the forefront because it's definitely a changing, changing landscape at the, at this particular time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it's probably the case that uh, co-op radio would, was not going to give airtime to a program rife with homo- homophobia. Right. No, that was already out there. That was talk radio. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and which, which, you know, provides that. I mean, it seems to me it provides that buffer, a little bit of a buffer, at least in that one, in, in which is both, you know, the, the space itself, the station where people come, but also that frequency, you know, that one place on the dial can be a respite from some of that toxicity, you hope. And I'm sure it was never always perfect because people aren't perfect, but, you know, and then. It's different if you're on YouTube uh, and the algorithm is sort of taking some control uh, over, you know, what what turns up the, and the, and the uh, algorithm being even more imperfect probably than most people. Oh, yeah. I mean, we could have – I'm a communication scholar. We could have a whole other <laughs> conversation about algorithmic bias for sure. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because the bias, uh, you know, reflects uh, who wrote the algorithm. Exactly. <laughs> and the values of the people in control and, and who are funding it and have an interest in where the algorithm goes. But, I mean, that's a digression, of course. Uh, uh, but it's just, you know, I think that to me is what's what's interesting about – this transition from radio into podcasting and there is still lots of through lines and, but, you know, as you kind of touched on the loss of kind of localized community in podcasting, because it has this sort of uh, more globalized scope. And then also that I think podcasting, you know, follows also this similar trajectory of, of community radio in that, early podcasting, you know, sort of, let's say, uh, early millennium uh, podcasting tended to emphasize even more niche and underrepresented groups in a certain way, because it was probably space, it was safe as well as just super accessible and fresh and new and hadn't yet, the mainstream didn't know about it (laughs) in a lot of ways. Yeah, and we've had those conversations where it's almost it's almost like an extension of of blogging and you had a lot of women who were podcasting in those early years who historians might not write about as much, but we've talked about on Radio Survivor with people like Jennifer Highland Wong explaining that history to us. And yeah, I, I would bet that there's some interesting lesbian podcasts in those early podcasts in that early podcast history too. And, you know, finding them can be a challenge. 
Yeah, I mean, Dykes on Mics was one of them. Mm. The hosts in in the 2000s who were making the show were so excited by the possibility of, they thought about it as an archive, which is interesting as well, thinking about um, differences in the way that we talk about podcasts now. They were thinking about how exciting it was to be able to archive the show this way and share it with their friends who, you know, maybe didn't live in Montreal anymore. They weren't necessarily thinking about it. They were excited about the fact that someone could hear them a week later. A hundred percent. A week later, and then also download the shows without having to get a cassette tape from their friend of the recording. <laughs> well, yeah, because you think about radio shows as more ephemeral. So that that was an amazing shift to be able to point people to an archive of something, a digital archive. Does that archive become problematic at all, Stacy? Um, you know, because of the fact that therefore, you know, I, I know that this comes up uh, in a in sort of a parallel track in the world of zines and specifically around people who've written per zines, personal zines that sometimes end up in libraries, in, in, in zine libraries. And there's a question of, you know, sometimes what that person wrote maybe as a very young person was intensely personal and really only intended to be seen by the dozens or few dozens people who received a physical copy and didn't even necessarily think it could end up in a place where many more people could could browse it. And then we have these archives of radio shows where maybe at the time people were really thinking of it as this is ephemeral. And so you might express something, express yourself or even, or even come out um, because the likelihood of it being heard over and over again, or, or, or um, you know, being heard much beyond the geographic boundaries of this show uh, was low, it, you know, and now, you know, as you're studying this and you're, and you're drawing on these archives, which I think many of them are public. Is this, is this correct? Yeah, a majority of them are that you can listen to them. I'm working on getting the Dykes on Mics tapes that I have that I've now finished digitizing into the archives, uh, archives with a Q here in Toronto, which was formerly known as the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives as well. So eventually those will be available to the public. Do you know if that if that's has that come up at all? Has anyone ever expressed uh, any one uh, your subjects you've talked with? Um, any just even hesitancy around now the this thing that they did you know twenty some years ago um, is uh, now people are, can can listen to again and maybe they thought you know even if it's just not so political but just cringe right <laughs> yeah I mean in listening back I get some of that so some of that like oh my gosh I can't believe I sounded like that kind of exclamations from people listening back to themselves many decades ago but for the most part people are really excited that there is some sort of collective memory of that work because the very essence of shows like the lesbian show and dykes on mics was about visibility it was about saying here we are (laughs) you know come to the show be part of the community come hang out be on air and if and because it was approached with more of a a feminist collective mentality Mm. people were given that chance to not say their names or to have someone else speak for them. And there was a lot of care given to that in, say, comparison to maybe more journalistic, investigative approaches um, of getting the story. That wasn't the point. It was about community building. So if someone didn't feel safe talking candidly on air, they they just wouldn't. That's a great point. 
I, I really, I really like that point that, and really taking it apart and cause we, it, we often, I think don't give, or at least I certainly, I don't, uh, give enough, uh, play and enough attention to these different ways of simply organizing. Right. And you've, you've, you've mentioned it here and there, you know, throughout this interview of doing it a, as a collective and, and under with, with these feminist values. And I wonder, can we have you tease that out a little bit more? and sort of kind of express explicitly like what are some of those values and why does it take time and, and why would this differ from how maybe there's just the, the default in, in our, in, in Canadian or in American culture? Yeah. I think a lot of media these days and not everything, of course, there's lots of really great thoughtful media being made too, but a lot of media that we consume, especially in the journalistic world, is media that has to be made quickly. And it has to be made with a particular story and a particular purpose in mind. And sometimes that means we have to, and I'm speaking from my own past experiences too, kind of gloss over some of the ethical concerns of what's being done in the process of making that work. And I think what feminist thought and feminist feminist collective work can bring to the table is telling us it's okay to slow down it's okay to really consider across identities. You know, if I'm, as I am, the white woman in the room at a table of other queer folks who maybe are coming from other racial or cultural backgrounds, am I taking up too much space? I shouldn't be. If I, if I am, I'm going to step back. And that's the same way that if you're taking a feminist approach to your audio production, you're thinking about that not only in the conversations that you're having, but also in the edits that you're making. Um, Who's driving your story? Who's the main voice in the work that you're making? Who are the musicians that you're using and hiring to make your soundtrack? It comes in at a lot of all of the levels across the board in your production process. And what does it mean to be a collective? It's a word I think we hear often and people have a have a, you know, we all have a sort of a general sense of what that means, but what does it mean when it comes to producing a weekly radio show or weekly podcast to to do so as, as a collective? Yeah. I mean, ideally it means it's non-hierarchical, but in practice, it usually means there's two or three people. Let's say, you know, my Femme Radio Collective at the time, there was about 20 people involved, you know, in different levels and and whether they could come every week or whether they could come once a month or once every other month. Um, But there was really about three of us usually at the time that were the core of the collective. And those are the people who are really, you know, actively making sure you're encouraging others to get involved, actively organizing, making the spreadsheets about what the episodes are going to look like moving forward, the the typical work that, say, producers would do on a regular radio show, right? Um, So you'll have collective members in that role. But it's also about encouraging and making sure other people um, who aren't as comfortable in those, those roles have the opportunity to try it out and to get the skills that they need to try that out within the collective because it is non-hierarchical. So I shouldn't be the producer on every single episode, right? Um, Which is not the model when we look at traditional media industry. There's a boss, you have a supervising producer, you have your juniors maybe, and you have your host, and they all have their separate distinct jobs. Um, Whereas collectives tend to rotate and kind of see who has ideas in in the mix at the time. Um, uh I think arts collectives in particular are good to look at as examples. Recent guest on Radio Survivor, Monica De La Torre, uh, described uh, 
being welcomed into a radio collective at KPFK in the early 2000s as the beginning of you know her her second opportunity to make radio and the first one that welcomed her yeah like the the first time she had an opportunity to make radio it was at a wonderful college radio station that in every way uh, the door was open the microphones were open but it wasn't until the collective experience was um you know here please come please you know and like it's yeah, Monica's story is still ringing, ringing, echoing through my head. Well, and, and when you're describing that uh, and what you just described, Stacey, about what feminist media making looks like and thinking about, am I taking up too much space? Do I need to make sure that other voices are heard? That and the collective idea, both of those would be so valuable across all sorts of community and college radio stations. If, if we all had those ideas in mind, we could probably make our spaces more welcoming. For sure. And I mean, the other flip side of that is it takes a lot of labor. So you have to be prepared for that. If you're not just churning out your episodes super quick and you need the time to think about these things, that's a lot of extra work. And so collectives really can help with that in destabilizing who is actually held accountable for everything. If it's everyone's work, we all take a piece of that extra labor, labor ideally, um, to make it work better. I think it's worth questioning whether, you know, a collective is somehow less efficient than this other model because, you know, it seems like in the U S here often, um, folks, think public radio in particular, right? So our NPR versus the CBC, they think it's, well, it, it must be, you know, more communitarian because it's public. It must be, you know, more uh, humanitarian, right? Humanist in its outlook. And yet what we keep hearing about is here, and I, and, and I know there have been some other similar controversies with the CBC, you know, about basically how stations have tolerated really terrible behavior by stars, right? That's the hierarchy. Somebody who by virtue of supposed popularity and talent has the ability to, to, to have more control, more power, but not necessarily more responsibility, right? And so most recently uh, there's a show called On the Media produced out of WNYC in New York City. Uh, and they fired uh, a longtime you know, co-host, co-producer, co-founder, Bob Garfield, uh, basically because he was treating people terribly. I mean, that's that's what they say. That's what they allege. And, you know, someone would tell you or make the case, well, that's what needs to be done, right? Because if you want to maintain the quality of that show and maintain its editorial voice, sometimes you have to be passionate, and sometimes that means, you know, ostensibly pushing people around, right? And that, you know, that's how the decision gets made. And, and of course, that doesn't take into account is the collateral damage for the people, all the other people in the room who are either experiencing the rage just because they're near it or who, at whom the rage is being directed. And then all of the what happens afterwards, right? The the, the chilly atmospheres in, in offices and in studios and hallways, the voiding of glances, the not wanting. Let's not take off Bob. Right. So now we're just going to. Well, and also which staff members. Uh, leave, which right. staff members have their career. Well, yeah, what is that damage? Uh, stunted by yeah. by Bob Garfield's 
crappy behavior. Yeah, well, and and you know, and and you know, we can't. This is these are allegations, but they map onto certainly other stories. They don't. They're not new stories, unfortunately, in public media, and 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 also it's happened in community media as well. And I think uh, those of us who've been involved in community in community radio stations have also seen that behavior uh, that is sometimes tolerated or not tolerated, as the case may be, um, and in star system. So that's, that's kind of what I wanted to to draw that out and 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 also you know make sure you know we kind of note that 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 way of doing things the hierarchical method methodology for lack of a better way of doing of putting it is just one method <laughs> and 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 it's it's worth uh questioning whether it's whether it is actually more efficient um because if that's all you know of course you're going to assume it assume that it's that way and so, do you see that that you know it, certainly you you've been you were part of you've been part of this uh, feminist collective uh, and production collective? Are you seeing this uh, getting replicated? Are, are do you do you see this you know when it comes to to lesbian feminist or or other forms of podcasting other other uh, sort of subject areas of podcasting? Are you seeing this kind of more collective? Um, less hierarchical, perhaps uh, more uh, just simply humanist uh, production schemes. Are, are you seeing them coming to the fore or are you, are you, are you getting, seeing evidence of it? I'm starting to hear hints of it. And I think we see it more in smaller groups like um, the Procyon podcast network I mentioned. They consider themselves more collective um, they work on their own individual shows on occasion, but then help each other with them and kind of share ideas and use the collective space and also share funds, which is quite interesting. So if one show is doing really well and has a really good Patreon uh, funding campaign going, let's say, and the other show doesn't, they can funnel some of those funds to help sustain and pay, you know, the actors, the voice actors to help that show. And, that sounds and like try community and make radio, better. right? I mean, yeah, exactly. when community radios do fun, <laughs> does fundraisers, the, the model typically is, is that you're raising funds for the station, not raising funds specifically oriented towards that one show when somebody happened to call. Exactly. And that's why we really just should be looking back <laughs> what models worked before yeah. and how can we translate them into the contemporary moment. And then have... there's there's networks like um, Mermaid Palace, for instance, which is now Caitlin Press's collective with the heart. Um, but I know they're struggling, right? Because Caitlin is already such an established figure and is aka the boss uh in that situation that's hard to transition into a collective format when you've kind of started especially in podcasting space it, it tends to be so independent when you're producing shows you work with a team but maybe quite temporarily in some cases or rather than the long term that a shift to a collective model sometimes is a harder shift um, and then I've heard, you know, there's other collectives out there. There's also other media companies like Pineapple Media who are trying to think more equitably, at least about who gets paid how much. So we're not having that same hierarchical pay scale uh, across the board. And I think that is one way that we can at least start to bring some of the collective mentality into the hierarchical systems that we already have before completely blowing them up. I just have to say... Uh, in the spirit of learning from the past, that collectives can be hijacked by 
the types of bullies that we have a concern already existing in the non-hierarchical structures. And those people... Uh, I think I think people who have a lot of experience in activist communities and a lot of experience opening the doors to collectives and then trying to um, come up with structures to deal with difficult people uh, know already the lessons. But um, yeah, terrible people are terrible people, and <laughs> but, and, and collectives can be um, more vulnerable. Yeah, to them than higher. Yeah, it's a it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope for sure. I'm just fascinated, you know. So. I mean, I work professionally in podcasting and I've done so now for seven years and I've been in community, you know, in college radio, you know, for too long before that. And then, you know, and otherwise my, my day job was, was related, but ancillary. And I'm, what I'm fascinated by is the shift that I see with podcasting compared to, to community and college radio in particular, right? That, Everyone, there seems to be much more focus on monetization, essentially, right? And on the one hand, it's understandable, right? Uh, like people, they under, they, you know, people need to pay rent. People need, uh, you know, there are some costs associated with producing media um, on your own. Although there are now, you know, spaces such, such as in the Vancouver Public Library, um, you know, where there are public you know, freely usable spaces for, for, for they provide you some resources for uh, production, but, you know, turning to the past again, my experience in community radio, say in the, in the, in the nineties and into the two thousands was that folks who came in to do shows and, and, and certainly that's self-selecting in a way. And we often don't take into account, who wasn't coming in and who couldn't come in to do shows, but folks who did come in, I mean, they weren't, they, it seemed to me, they thought of it as, is this, this is simply, it's my, it's my volunteer time in a way. It's my hobby. You might say, I don't wish to, you know, I don't, yeah. I, I don't wish to have the same dreams of grandeur well, that people or, might have. Yeah, I wonder, I, mean, and I don't know whether it's dreams of grandeur or what. It's an interesting shift. I mean, and I think the shift is wrought across the culture or at least the culture here in the United States, which, and it seems similar in other Western capitalist cultures, like in Canada. Um, it's interesting to me to have watched it happen. Cause I, I feel like even from podcasting 10 years ago, folks are doing it because, they they felt like they had to, they wanted to, they desired to, um, and hearing all this talk of you know the monetization and stuff, I'm kind of like what what happened to that kind of volunteer spirit? As problematic as it is, right? I, I don't want to make it too simple, but I don't know if you have sense, Stacy, because I'm I've been in it and I've been watching it, and and I myself like I, I don't know. Does it still exist? Do you see it? That DIY punk yeah, the, the, spirit the, the, that the, used yeah, to be DIY in punk, I guess, yeah, or and also you know, and, and sort of volunteer. Like this is what you know. My my thing is, you know, I don't I don't play golf. I don't bowl. Um, you know, I don't uh, build chips and bottles. I uh, <laughs> I podcast, and we make this podcast. Uh, you know uh, about uh, you know, and I, I'm so I'm but a feminist, all, and, and all, that's what just, we make a podcast about. Paul, you just dropped a lot of hobbies that only old people can I know, old men, <laughs> I mostly. Know. I realize that. I realize this. And that's fine. I, I, you know, I realize that those are all middle-aged men hobbies, but 
Well, as you're asking that, I'm also thinking about podcasting has just grown so much that I would think, me, Jennifer, I would think that the landscape of podcasting is is just so big that you're going to have some DIY people and you're going to have the the people who are who have the dreams of grandeur. Yeah, there's still a ton of just people sitting in their living room with friends making a podcast and then throwing it up onto the internet. And some of those are great. <laughs> I love listening to some of those d- more DIY, grungy, uncut podcasts from time to time. Um, there's a, one from Vancouver that I'm shamelessly a big Xena Warrior Princess fan. And there's a, a Xena Warrior Princess podcast that's done by two folks and they drink beer while they listen to an episode and it plays awfully on their TV in the background while they just chit chat and make jokes about the episodes. That is just as enjoyable for me to listen to as say an episode of The Heart or Invisibilia with high production value. So what's the name of the podcast? I think it's Warriors, Bards, and Brews. I always get the name wrong. Let me right. double check. And, and Eric's Eric's got a taxonomy of podcasts. Uh, of there are beer podcasts and coffee podcasts, <laughs> and so that would I guess be the beer podcast. Whereas I think Eric, you've classified Radio Survivor as a coffee podcast, right? Yeah. Um, oh, I haven't even heard. Why have I not even heard this? <laughs> my, my husband it does feel more like a po- uh, coffee podcast. Yeah. My husband <laughs> listens while making dinner. So is that another category? Making dinner podcast? Yeah, it's more about the energy of the host. But, oh, got it. Okay. I, um, but nevertheless, I mean, I'm, so I was, I'm really glad to hear you hear you uh, point out, like, like you know, one in particular, because you know, I think. Also, having been in a position of being consulted for advice on podcasting many times over the last decade, you know, and, uh, you know, an example like The Heart, which is a wonderful show, wonderfully produced, sometimes puts people in the mindset of, well, if I can't pull off something like The Heart, then then maybe I can't do it or it won't be taken seriously or I won't find listeners Right. And and it sort of would be the same argument, you know, using your your punk rock uh, kind of analogy of saying, well, if I can't if I can't make uh, Steely Dan's Asia or Fleetwood Mac's rumors. Right. Well, you know, then I shouldn't be recording. But then, you know, we never would have had Bikini Kill. Right. If, if someone if, if, if they had taken that same attitude of what we're doing here can't be good enough uh, because we're doing it our way. Yeah, one is coffee music and one is beer music. (laughs) No, I mean, podcasts come in all shapes and forms. And some of the best podcasts, it's because of the personalities behind the microphone and what they're talking about. It's not about the production value in particular. And that is still some of the magic that you find in podcasting for sure. So thinking back to the lesbian show or Dykes on Mics, I mean, the way you drew them out is there was a sort of a difference in the way they, they formatted their shows and did their shows. And I'm curious in terms of the production value of either, let's say the lesbian show, which is the magazine format show. Like, would you have listening back? Is, does it sound like a CBC show or does it really sort of still sound like a community radio show, which means to be perhaps a little rougher around the edges, a little more scrappy, uh, more likely to have errant noises and, and you know not 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 absolute studio silence, people talking over each other, more live mics or something like that. 
I mean, it's partly hard to tell because the tapes are sometimes so old uh-huh. and recorded from someone's crummy radio in their house that you get all of this radio static, right? Frequency <laughs> noise all over top of it that you can't quite parse out the production quality of the episodes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in one sense, just listening to what they're saying and how it's formatted, certainly it's not a high production CBC show, but they're quite technically tight some of the episodes and i think that relates back again to the structure of the stations at the time vancouver co-op radio is very intense about the way that they train people and give them certain levels of accreditation to be say the board operator there and that was established right from the get-go in the 70s and 80s at vancouver co-op so some of the shows had board ops who board opt for multiple shows and were really, really good at it. So that it sounded pretty good, but the talent net sometimes wasn't quite as uh, the same sort of formal professional, but that's what made the show what it was. If they shouldn't sound exactly like um, a CBC talking head on a new segment, they should sound like them. Um, and that's part of why I think we need to make more connections between community radio and podcasting. There's a lot of overlap in some of the experimental talk and dialogue formats, some of the experimental work that's being done in both of the forms, um, not only in talk formats, but also in sound art as well. Vancouver Co-op Radio had a huge soundscape composition community, for instance, and shows that ran for, again, decades and still today working in experimental sound. And are there archives of that that we can listen to? Yes. Um, I think there's actually one at SFU. Let me look it up. I think mm. that's a fairly recent addition. So, so what is it up? about Vancouver that ended up fulminating this, what seems like an interesting amount of, of uh, interaction Right uh, between, uh, say, Co-op Radio and folks at the university, and now the, also the city archives. Right, that that's a fair amount of, you know, often institutions don't like to collaborate <laughs> with each other, and and very often, you know, you sort of mentioned the distrust of say the of, of of the lesbian community or the queer community in more, you know, like a city institution or something, and and not being treated right, or with a university, and and to have sort of it goes the other way in which sometimes a community radio station is too scrappy, too small, seen as too, you know, unreliable for say like a, a, an esteemed university like a Simon Fraser to to want to be bothered with <laughs> in a way. And this comes from somebody who did community radio in a university town, right? Where you are always sort of in interaction with the big university and sometimes they love you and sometimes you're just a pest and sometimes you know, isn't that a nice little club you guys have there? And, you know, that's great. But yeah, no, we don't take you seriously. Right. So what, what, what's going on there? Do you have any sense for it? There's a few different things I could maybe speak to. So Vancouver, in comparison to U.S. cities, is much smaller. Um, what's the current population of Vancouver? And then we can think I think about it's about the size of Portland, smaller. Oregon, where Eric and I are. Yeah. It's 675,000 people yeah. as of 2017. So in the grand scheme of things, it's a fairly smaller city, especially if we're thinking global, too. But I think that has one aspect 
to do with it. So there's only so many people who are maybe interested in sound or interested in a certain politics. And so they tend to know each other in the same city in these smaller city spaces. So the soundscape show is the show that I was thinking of. And I, I think there is, if they're, if they're not online yet, they should be online at some point because the city of Vancouver got a whole collection from um, Vancouver Co-op Radio as well. So I would guess there'd be some soundscape um, mm. pieces in there from that, that radio show. But um, I think it also had to do with Simon Fraser, the School of Communication at the time in the 70s, with R. Murray Schaefer and with Hildegard Westerkamp. Hildegard Westerkamp was a, an active member of the Soundscape show, for instance, mm. and it's still someone who has quite a few ties at Vancouver Co-op Radio. They were artists, and there wasn't that many places to showcase your sound work at the time. So Co-op Radio was one of those places. If you weren't um, doing your larger projects with the CBC, which they also did, uh, Co-op Radio was the place for it. <clears throat> I'm so gonna it's say these personal connections still that, that, that seem to really drive, and, and there are some places due to maybe being just critical mass enough, but not so big that you get lost. And, and uh, that, that, that allows it, them to, to, to know about each other and interact. Hearing Stacy describe to answer your question. I mean, it just sounds to me like, um, I hope, I hope this is still a real thing, but it sounds like the Pacific Northwest values, <laughs> you know, in, in action, uh, whatever that may be at this stage of the, of the 21st century uh sometimes i'm afraid of probably just as much pressure in vancouver as in portland oregon that those values are under attack uh by housing costs right the rental <laughs> the rental housing market sort of uh is um in opposition to the kind of pacific northwest values that that make that make community art possible and and archives and collaboration and all this good stuff yeah. Um, another random thing I wanted to throw into the microphones just for this episode was I remember that one of the superpowers of a community radio show, especially from the 90s, that I wish more podcast producers in, in the year 2022 were aware of is that uh, community radio producers didn't know how many people were listening and didn't count their listeners. Being on the air was the privilege. Making the show was the point. And they had it easy because they were on this radio station. The radio station had listeners. You just could sort of take that for granted. But also, they it is entirely possible that they had a lower number of listeners than a podcast that would quit within a week. But they didn't know it, nor did they care, nor did they count. And that's one of the worst things about podcasts, right, is that anybody who starts one uh, – knows how bad they're doing within the first week, um, it, it can be very discouraging and very dis, uh, disheartening, uh, unmotivating, right, to find out you only have eight listeners or, 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 or even only 47 listeners. But, you know, if you have 47 listeners, you guys are doing really well. Totally. And I've had so many of those conversations with other community radio folks, you know, they were just making it and they're like, we hope somebody's listening. And then they'd get so excited if they got a letter or people would call in to say, you know, I love your show. Even one of the hosts who had been on Dykes on Mics for a long time, she was just out in the world 
years after she got off air and someone was like, oh my God, are you Deb from Dykes on Mics? Because they recognized her voice. And so those interactions for, I think, community radio folks were just bonus. They were making it because they were making it exactly like you said. But yeah, and I mean, I digress, but in the world of scholarly podcasting that I'm now digging into uh, with Hannah McGregor, who's been on your show, I think academics are excited about podcasting because scholarly articles are so gated and so um, niche that, you know, it's wild if you have 50 people read your article versus a podcast has the potential of reaching so many more. I wonder the the producers behind uh, Dykes on Mikes, um, you know, and, and other uh, lesbian shows, did they know about each other? Was there an awareness of, of, of other uh, lesbian radio shows or were they really kind of just operating for lack of a better way of putting somewhat more naively? So what I've been digging into more recently and partly inspired by a book I literally have sitting here right now, which is information activism by Kate McKinney. Mm. It's um, a book all about information activism that lesbian feminists were involved in around the same time periods as the radio shows I'm studying. She's also one of my committee members. Um, that's why I, I've been reading it <laughs> so early on, but um Thinking about the networks of other media and information dissemination that is involved in these shows getting out there. So a lot of, you know, very grassroots uh, gay and lesbian newspapers and magazines like The Body Politic in Canada and Angles were the way that other shows found out about each other because they'd write into these magazines mm -hmm. and then they'd get their copy mailed back to them and say, oh my God, look, there's like this show in Toronto or there's this show in Montreal too. Let's call them and see if they'll answer the phone. And those were the kinds of interactions they'd have or someone would move. This was uh, one of the stories I've had shared with me. You know, someone's friend would move from um, Montreal to Vancouver Someone would be like, oh, could you bring this cassette with you? Uh, I hear there's a lesbian radio show out there. I bet they'd love to hear what we're doing. And this cassette would journey across the country with this person. And that would be the first time that the other folks in, say, the lesbian show would hear what the folks at Dykes on Mics were doing. So, As you're talking about these zines, it's making me think about other fan communities where they're often the tape exchanges will happen through the zines. So I wonder if that was happening too, where if you have magazines for the lesbian community, if, if people were exchanging tapes through that too. Yeah, the early days of the lesbian show, they I found some ads they were actually promoting. If you wanted copies of the show, they would mail them to you. Mm. And that's actually that was a fairly common phenomenon uh, in, in in not less so with with community radio shows that weren't syndicated in some way, shape, or form, right? But I know that I was thinking. I, I keep thinking of. Do you, are you aware of Women's International News Gathering Service Wings? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? Wings. Now I believe Frida is based in in Canada, but I'm it's mm -hmm. sort of international uh, women's international news gathering service. Uh, do you know what you know? And I think they've long provided folks you could write in and and buy cassettes of their programming. Do you know? Was there any internet any any interaction with any of these uh, local shows? I mean, it, women's with wings. Yeah, with wings. Do you know? Was there? Ever oh, any I'm sure. <laughs> okay. It's funny. I I interviewed Frida 
a few years ago for Femme Radio, actually. And at the time, I think she was looking to pass on wings to some other folks. I mm-hmm. think there might be other folks in charge of it now. But anyways, um, she's amazing. Yes. I'm sure that she knew, especially because she does live in BC now in British Columbia. I'm sure she knew all of the folks, if not, well, a few of the folks, if not all of the folks who were involved with the lesbian show at the time. Uh, this is all making me think, you know, you're talking about listening to some of these tapes that people recorded off the radio, and that's part of your research. I would imagine that now is a really good time for people to find these tapes and get them digitized, because there's probably a lot more out there. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Contact your local archivist. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it, do you have a PO box? Easy, can we, can people send them <laughs> yeah, to you? I know. I, know. <laughs> I mean, seriously, email me. I, I would be so happy. It'd be like Christmas morning for me if people sent me a bunch of boxes of tapes. Um, but I, it is, it is a hard process. You know, we talk about it like it might be easy to just donate all your stuff to an archive, but it can be daunting sometimes, all of the paperwork and administration involved in some of that stuff. So, I would be happy if people reached out to me if they had lesbian, the lesbian show tapes or Dykes on Mics or other lesbian and queer shows I can direct them to, you know, people like Brian that I'm sure would be equally as excited to hear that content. Yeah, thank you so much. I think that, you know, it's really important. I know that tapes are, you know, we don't have much longer. There's not much life left in some of these tapes that we might have in our attics and basements. So and someone might think it's way cooler than you think it currently is. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't underestimate the value of some of those dusty old right. tapes. And, and by life, Jennifer is referring specifically to the chemical properties of the physical tape being able to still exist and hold sound, not uh, some kind of um, cultural value. The, 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 the tapes need to be digitized uh, now. To, to make sure that they still will be around 10 years from now. Yeah, huge issue, tape degradation right now, for sure. So yes, if they've been sitting there for a while, get them out of the closet or get them out of the basement and see how what kind of form they're currently in. And let's, help, let's all help add to this collective archive of lesbian history. Stacey Copeland, thanks so much for being on Radio Survivor today. Thanks for having me. This was a really fun way to spend my Friday night. Our thanks to Stacy Copeland for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Show notes are up online at radiosurvivor.com where you can hear this episode or previous episodes. You can also subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Jennifer Waits produced today's episode. My name is Eric Klein and Paul Reeswindel was here as well with us. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. You can go to online to radiosurvivor.com slash support to find out more about how to help us continue to do the work in the years to come. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We'd love to hear from listeners with critiques, feedback, show ideas, questions, questions for show ideas feedback for show ideas uh thank you so much for reaching out everyone who's done so and again that email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com well uh, thank you so much for listening we'll see you next week